Hey, are you ready to get stuck in the 80s with us for a week at sea? The 80s Cruise returns March 5th through 12th, 2022 on the Royal Caribbean Mariner of the Seas. The 2022 lineup includes, are you ready for this? I don't think you're ready for this, but here it comes anyway. The Human League, 38 Special, ABC, Berlin, Morris Day and the Time, Belinda Carlisle, Dire Straits Legacy, John Parr, Modern English, Jack Russell's Great White, John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band, A Flock of Seagulls, The Alarm, The Sugar Hill Gang, John Parr, Johnny Hates Jazz, and Jesse's Girl, our favorite 80s tribute band from New York City. Brad and I will be there hosting trivia, recording live podcasts, and generally making fools of ourselves. Come be a fool with us. You could score some nice cabin credit if you book the 80s cruise using the promo code STUCK. Don't wait until the last minute to book. The voyage is going to sell out soon. Go to www.the80scruise.com to learn more. Now on with the show. Travel back in time to the 80s. Reliving the music. You can't have the Pretender's first album. That's mine. I bought it. You did not. The catchphrases. Did you have a brain tumor for breakfast? And the wannabes. Sometimes I see you dance around the house in my underwear. Doesn't make me a Madonna. Never will. Because just like you, we're stuck in the 80s. Can you say stuck in the 80s? Our life together is so precious. Together we have grown. We have grown. Although our love is still special, let's take a chance. Hey, hey, welcome to Stuck in the 80s. It's your host, Steve Spears. And Brad in LA. And today we go back 40 years to talk about John Lennon in 1980. Stuck in the 80s is now listener supported via Patreon. Join us for VIP Zoom happy hours and more when you join at patreon.com slash stuck in the 80s podcast. Hey gang, about a month or so ago, I heard about a new book about the former Beatles singer and songwriter. It's called John Lennon, 1980 Playlist, and it was written by music historian Tim English. And let me see, I got sucked in from the very first page. The author did a lot of work tracking down what Lennon was listening to from 1975 to 1980 when he was taking that prolonged break from the recording business. And the stuff you'll read in this book, you would never have guessed. Um, the music Lennon was listening to, stuff like Devo, the Doobie Brothers, Roxy Music, The Knack, Queen, even Donna Summer. Steve sends me an email, a text, and I think a telegram. Like, Brad, you got to read this book. You got to take a look at it. And I'm like, okay, okay, fine. You know, well, let me let me skim over it. The first story, bang out of the gate, is about John Lennon approaching Mark Mothersbaugh in the alley behind a club in New York. This is before Devo even had an album out, and like singing back lyrics to him from a song. And I'm like, okay, I'm interested. But there's so much more in this book. It's the amount of detail. I mean, this is. Listeners know I love a good wonky topic, and this is the, a wonky topic, but it's a wonky topic that's really well-researched and well-presented. Tim's research is incredible, and I think it will give any Beatles fan a really good insider look into Lennon's state of mind musically as he recorded his final album, uh, which would turn out to be Double Fantasy. 
I think you're, it's a bit of a fantasy, a single fantasy to think you could truly climb inside Lennon's mind because just who knows what's going on in there. But I think you get a really good look at what was influencing him and what he enjoyed. I mean, I, it's, it's just so hard to believe that we're at the 40th anniversary of John's death. 40 years ago. I know. And, uh, Tim and I talk about that right up front. And let me just warn you that I get a little sad towards the end what? of the interview. You? <laughs> we, we talk a little bit more about John's death. And we have a discussion about the 2019 movie yesterday. Brad, have you seen that movie? Uh, yeah, I have. I have. Okay, so... It presumes a world without the Beatles. And there's one scene uh, involving Lennon that I still have trouble talking about. When you guys talk about that in the interview, I had a very similar reaction. The second time I saw it, it just it resonated, that scene. The, the movie itself, yeah, it's a little fluffy. It's fun. It does no harm. It's entertaining. But that scene is where all of the wallop is for a Beatles fan. The rest of it is kind of a boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy sings songs. <laughs> I mean, not to be dismissive, Hollywood. No, I'm sorry, no, it's, it's a fine movie. It's And we enjoyed it. And you don't see it coming. And when it does... And when it does, you're just like, oh. Boom. Oh. Yeah. Anyway, don't let my Spearsonian mood play distract you. Uh, I think it's a fun interview. Uh, it's a book that's truly unique. And it will be special to those who appreciated the uh, work of John Lennon. So sit back and enjoy this conversation with the author of John Lennon 1980 Playlist, Tim English. Tim English, welcome to Stuck in the 80s. Your new book is called John Lennon 1980 Playlist. I'm curious, what was the spark behind writing on this topic? Well, you know, when thinking about writing a book, this is my third book. I always try to uh, come up with a, a book that I would want to read myself if someone else had written it. And um, I thought that, you know, when considering John Lennon in 1980, uh, originally I was thinking of maybe writing a book where 1980 was the center of the story and John was just a part of it. But then I realized that there were so many compelling things going on in his life that year that I would just focus on him. And then, you know, I thought that the window, looking at his life through the window of the songs that he was listening to, not only in 1980, but into the run-up to 1980, where he was really uh, undercover and out of the public eye. And even to this day, there's not uh, as much written about him in those years as obviously during the Beatles or the early solo years of the 70s. So I just, the more I discovered about it, I just thought it was a cool window to kind of shed light on who he was as an artist, where he was at in uh, 1980, and also show that some of the songs he was listening to really influenced his decisions, crucial decisions that he made in 1980. So um, I discuss all of that in the book. And uh, I, even for the hardcore Beatlemaniacs, I think they'll find some, uh, some new and interesting information and insights in the book. The timing is also notable considering we're just about at the 40th anniversary of his assassination. Yep. Do, do you remember how you heard the news and what your reaction was? I remember very well. It was one of the worst uh, things that I can ever remember happening. I, I was a college student in Rhode Island at the time. And like most Americans, I heard it via Howard Cosell on Monday Night Football. Timeout is called. Three seconds remaining. John Smith is on the line. And I don't care what's on the line, Howard. You have got to say what we know in the booth. 
Yes, we have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game, no matter who wins or loses. An unspeakable tragedy confirmed to us by ABC News in New York City. John Lennon, outside of his apartment building on the west side of New York City, the most famous, perhaps, of all of the Beatles, shot twice in the back, rushed to Roosevelt Hospital, dead on arrival. Hard to go back to the game after that news flash, which in duty found we had to take. Frank? Indeed it is. One of the things I try to do is in the book is to a little bit to show people what life was like in 1980 um, and the background in, to, on, against which these events were taking place. One of which was it's a totally different world of communications in 1980. I remember in our college dorm room, we had the three network stations out of Rhode Island. Then we had a couple from Boston, but you basically had five or six channels uh, of TV, you know, which is uh, probably to young people today, that's just uh, incomprehensible. <laughs> you know? And you got, you heard your music on the radio or you went out and bought it. You know, there was no such thing really as, uh, as there's no such thing as the internet, never mind, never mind screaming. There was no such thing as uh, CDs or, or fax machines. Uh, it really, I mean, to me, or maybe people that lived through that time, it seems like yesterday, but on the other hand, it's 40 years ago. It's a long time ago. But uh, I, had, I learned it from Howard Cosell. And it, so it was just a devastating moment because he didn't even say he was injured. He said he was DOA at the hospital. Turned out ABC had a local reporter that happened to have a bike accident that night and was in the emergency room. And just by happenstance, heard the news and got the scoop on the, this uh, horrible story. There's one thing you point out at the beginning of the book, and I think it's it's important to understand that point as you, as, as readers go through it, that you, you point out that Lennon's death happens the same year as his creative rebirth. I, th I think you use those exact words. Yes. And I, I'm trying to think of other musicians or artists who had a similar fate. I'm, I'm guessing Michael Jackson comes to mind because he was attempting a comeback series of concerts and maybe Marvin Gaye, because he was shot as he was, as he was, his career was heating back up again. In the case of Jackson, I mean, there was sort of a long decline there. He was making, attempting to make a comeback at the time and never quite made it, you know. He was trying to get back on the stage at the time. Uh, Marvin Gaye had well-documented personal issues too. Uh, I mean, John had really uh, been out of the limelight in the beginning of the book, I show how just how unusual that was for a rock star of his status. And I show the output of some of his contemporaries for mm -hmm. the years that John was away. And uh, basically, you were required to put out an album a year. And John did that himself in the years following uh, the Beatles breakup up and up until and through uh, Walls and Bridges and 1974 and Rock and Roll covers album in 75. It was really unheard of somebody of his stature could just say, you know, just chuck it and say, uh, I'm not, not going to be recording for a while. But that's what he did. He took time to raise his son, uh, who was born in, on his birthday, John's birthday, October 1975. Uh, but yeah, I mean, he, so he really, I think, got in touch with the muse again in 1980 uh, for various reasons. He, he, he thought that the music of 1980 was great. He said, this is the best, uh, best time for music since the 1960s. 
And if you think about the great music of the 60s, for somebody like Don Lennon to make that statement, carries a lot of weight. It's so weird to me when you when you look at the time period that that he was inactive, and I, I guess you could say six years if you consider the fact that rock and roll was, or his album Rock and Roll was was mainly covers, or I think it was all covers. It was all covers, yeah. Right. So during that six years, we see the birth of punk rock, we see disco, we see new wave. I mean, I'm trying to think if I'm, I guess glam rock, I think would have already been around and reggae was around but reggae was really coming to the fore in those years uh too yeah i mean it's it's an interesting it's an interesting period of time to sit things out and but at the same point i i kind of i kind of like what you're saying here that at the beginning of the 80s which is obviously an era that i'm particularly infatuated with those genres of music had somehow combined to create a, a unique sound that obviously turned him on well, in 1980, I mean, there was a lot of change going on because disco had kind of hit its peak in 1979. That was the summer where they uh, had the uh, disco demolition night at uh, Kaminsky Park. Whether that was the cause of it or that was a symptom of people were tired of disco uh, right after that, the Bee Gees can't get arrested anymore. Uh, disco as a genre really declines, although dance music has kind of got renamed as uh, dance music. At the same time, in 1980, New Wave was really in the forefront. I mean, uh, so many bands were influenced by New Wave and disco, too. I mean, Stones had a disco track with Miss You, but they also, with the Some Girls album, got back to doing a little more concise songs, a little more stripped down, uh, a little more rock and roll. Uh, and um, you could say that about a number of bands. I mean, Billy Joel's album, uh, Glass Houses, was certainly a new wave influence. It's much more of a guitar uh, song-based album, you know, than he had previously done. So 1980 was, you know, an interesting time. You had sort of had disco going out, new waves had its ascendancy. And, you know, sometimes people ask me, well, what, how would John have been in the 80s? You got to remember, and this is something that you know, I mean, the contemporaries of John from the 60s had a rough go of it during the 1980s. If you look at uh, Paul McCartney, you had some early, you know, he had some hit singles with Michael Jackson and TV Wonder, but the rest of the decade kind of, uh, not so much. Bob Dylan had a terrible decade of the 1980s until the very end of the 80s. Uh, likewise, the Stones, who almost broke up uh, during that time. David Bowie had a big success with Let's Dance, but uh, kind of starts uh, declining in uh, quality after that. So uh, it would have been interesting to see, uh, obviously, what John would have, would have done. Let me ask you this. Why do you think those artists had such a hard time finding success or finding their niche in the 80s? Well, I mean, it's hard to keep up a course of any creative career over decade after decade. And, you know, uh, in the case of the Beatles and the Lennon and McCartney, I mean, they obviously started in the 60s, continued on into the 70s at a very high uh, standard. Likewise, Bowie in the 70s put out a great string of albums, same with Elton John, Billy Joel. But, you know, it's, at some point, it's just hard to keep up the streak, I guess. Uh, the other part of it, I think, was that uh, by 1980, and you see the beginnings of this, where John 
sees Bowie's video for um, Ashes to Ashes is, is really taken with it. You may recall that use of the paint box technique. It was extremely innovative video and much imitated uh, video for its time. It used the paint box technique. John was, thought that was great. He said, that's what I should be doing. So uh, he probably would have been in the forefront with video too. He'd been making movies and, and videos with Yoko for years. But I mean, I think that was um, something that bands like uh, the, the Stones and, uh, and, uh, and others had a hard time dealing with. It was much more focused on the visuals and the videos at that time. I found a quote from John Lennon by the uh, photographer, Ethan Russell. Uh, they were uh, shooting a video for the song Woman on the day before Thanksgiving 1980 in Central Park. And they were just shooting film of John and Yoko walking around, which later came out. But uh, the guys who were doing the video said, well, aren't you got a lip sync to the song? You know, let's have a little something more than you just walking around the park. And John said, I don't want to do that. He said, I don't want to be like, Mick Jagger in some video prancing in front of the camera at age 40. How do you think he would have engaged with MTV? Do you think that would have been something he would have been behind and embraced? Yeah, because if you look at it, I mean, they were doing films for a long time. I mean, they did the whole Imagine uh, movie, which is uh, part documentary, but also has some you know set pieces where he's singing Imagine and uh, Yoko is opening the, uh, the uh, curtains behind him. I mean, he had he, he sort of had videos for a couple of his songs, like uh, Mind Games and uh, Whatever Gets You Through the Night. So, uh, and he'd done his experimental uh, films with Yoko uh, also. So I, I think he definitely would have engaged with that at some point, maybe not in the way that he, uh, you know, uh, uh, maybe in a good way or in a creative way. I think he would have, whatever the media was, I think he would have been involved with it. You write in the book that it's hard to know everything that Lennon did during those years because he was out of the public eye, but you've managed to, to piece together an amazing amount of work about what he was listening to. How did you go about doing that? Well, there's information out there if you know where to look at it. I also just looked through any people that may, may have had some contact with him, um, uh, stories for uh, songs that they, uh, you know, that he may have listened to. There are notes available, both in a, a book of his letters and also online, that he had written to his assistant saying, go fetch me this book, go get me that album. So that was the source for, uh, for quite a few of these. And then I discovered uh, some on my own. And of course, looking at interviews that John had given where he mentioned various songs. And what I tried to do is also show how these songs connected to John, how they connected to his earlier career, how they may have possibly uh, resonated in his life during 1980 and previously. So along the way of discussing these things, I try to bring some new insights that maybe people uh, weren't aware of before. Uh, for instance, the song Watching the Wheels, I think I used circumstantial evidence, but I think I've documented that he uh, probably got his title Watching the Wheels from the Doobie Brothers. Sure, watching, uh, don't stop to watch the wheels, yeah. Look out! Oh, no. Don't stop to watch the wheels. 
he had been working on watching the wheels sometime early, probably starting in 77, early 78. And we originally started off being called Emotional Wreck. But by the end of 1979, it's turned into the Watching the Wheels song that we know. And that song is so, the phrase is so unusual. I think it's highly likely that he got from the uh, Doobie Brothers song, which actually says, Watching the Wheels Go Round, just as John's song says. And in John's case, he, he, to him, watching the wheels meant watching what the world go on, but also watching what was going on in his, with himself and analyzing what he was doing in life. I'm just sitting here watching the wheels go round and round. I think one of the most interesting stories that I read early in the book that really hooked me for the rest of it was the story about Devo and seeing Lennon play, uh, seeing Lennon at a Devo concert at Max's Kansas City. Yeah, Mark Mothersbaugh of Devo tells that story, which is really an amazing story uh, um, that he was uh, outside of Max's Kansas City having played the show. And this was even before... Um, their album, their first album, Are We Not Men, uh, We Are Devo, came out in 1978. And um, Bowie was championing them at the time. And Bowie was talking about possibly producing what would be their, become their first album. He never did. The Eno did instead, Brian Eno. But uh, Mother's Ball tells the story that he's out in the van uh, waiting for the people to leave so he can back and get, go back and get his equipment. And the drunk uh, John Lennon sticks his head through the uh, through the window and start singing the uh, Devo song Uncontrollable Urge back to him. And uh, John picked up on the fact that it has the yeah, 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 that you're just like the Beatles, she loves you. And also the fact that the opening chords are reminiscent of the opening chords of I Want to Hold Your Hand. It's it's interesting. I, I as I read through the book and I see the bands that he had that he he asked his assistant to go get or that he felt a connection with, and you start to think about his music in 1980 and and the and the bands that you know he obviously had a feel for Blondie, Roxy Music, even even the Knack, which kind of caught me off guard. And then I started thinking about it a little bit more, and I'm like, of course, of course, he would the Knack and John Lennon make sense together. Well. As I point out in the book, when John hears um, uh, Queen's uh, crazy little thing called Love, and which was a number one hit in early 1980, sure. he says, this is my type of music. They're doing Elvis. Elvis is my guy. Uh, this, is, this is my type of music. Maybe it's time for me to go back. But remember, a few months before, the big, really the biggest album of 1980 was Get the Knack, which you know they even got criticized for you know, trying to sort of subtly compare themselves to the Beatles. Maybe it was unfair criticism, but, you know, the title, Get the Knack, Meet the Beatles, some of the pictures that they had in the album looked like uh, uh, like maybe like Hard Day's Night. The actual name of the Knack came from 
uh, the movie called The Knack and How to Get It, which was directed by the director of Hard Day's Night, the film he directed uh, right after the Hard Day's Night, Richard Lester. So, and of course, the music is certainly influenced, uh, is kind of Beatlesque or new uh, uh, British invasion type of, uh, you know, two guitars and bass and drums. So John's got to be watching that in uh, summer and fall of 1980 and I'm uh, sorry, 1979 and thinking, hmm, you know, these guys are basically doing Beatles type stuff and they're the biggest group going. So of course the popularity of the Beatles and that type of music had never really died out. But if you're looking for evidence that that style of music was back in vogue, I think there was a lot of it around. I mean, what was going on with some of the new wave acts like, uh, like Dave, Dave Edmonds, Nick Lowe, Squeeze, uh, Graham Parker, even Bruce Springsteen, you know, who always encored with uh, Twisted Shout during those years. So, um, you know, I think he was, at some point, he really finally decided, yeah, now's the time to come back. And as I write in the book, the song uh, Rock Lobster by the Beatles was a key turning point in that. Yeah, that was one of the surprises, too. I, I would never have put B-52s and, and him together, but then you make the the notation that, hey, this sounded a lot like what Yoko was doing. Which it was their sort of homage to, to Yoko. The B-52s were one of a fairly small universe of people that picked up on Yoko's early early albums, and they were big fans of hers. And if you listen to the Kate Pearson sort of uh, vocalization near the end of the song, it's directly out of Yoko Ono. I mean, and John picked up on that immediately. He said, "They're wow, they're doing Yoko. And to him, he heard it and said, you know, they're finally picked up uh, uh, on the, the world is finally caught up to what Yoko was doing 10 years earlier and, and with John and the Plastic Ono Band. Now's the time to get back. And really, they were right then made the decision to uh, get back into the studio, which they did as soon as John heard that song at the, uh, in Hamilton, Bermuda in June. And by uh, early August, they were back in the studio, back in New York. Um, in your research, as you as you're covering this and you're starting to write this, were there bands and artists that you were able to discover that Lennon definitely didn't like from that era? In certain songs he picked up on and was critical of, and he made a tape in uh, kind of a strange tape, an audio diary, which may have been the beginning of notes for an autobiography. But right after he got back from vacationing in Japan in September 1979, he records this rather unusual or strange uh, audio diary. And in that, he kind of uh, criticizes just about everybody, uh, but particularly uh, Bob Dylan, who had put out the uh, Soul Train Coming album and the song, uh, uh, You Gotta Serve Somebody. John very sarcastically said, you know, Bob, uh, Dylan's religious uh, Born Again albums, he said, uh, you know, what is he a waiter now? You know, very sarcastically about that. But he also called uh, McCartney and Mick Jagger, he called them company men, meaning that they just did whatever went along with whatever the record company uh, wanted them to do. He, he, he also was uh, critical of Neil Young and Neil Young's song, uh, My, My, Hey, Hey, and Hey, Hey, My, My, that um, which seemed to glorify uh, burning out in John's eyes, where he said, uh, you know, he says it's better to burn out than, than it is to rust or to fade away. And John says, well, it's so great. Why doesn't he do it? You know, he's not doing it himself. So uh, he, he didn't, he was uh, critical of that. He was also critical of uh, uh, the same theme of some of the uh, new wave or punk stars that had, you know, 
basically killed themselves or committed suicide. Uh, like he mentioned Sid Vicious in that uh, vein. He says, I like the music. I like the energy of punk rock. Uh, John had apparently been following Sid's uh, travails, uh, you know, involving the murder of uh, his girlfriend. Uh, and John kind of confused them with the Sex Pistols because when asked about the Sex Pistols, he said, yeah, I watched them when they were playing down at Max's Kansas City. Of course, the Sex Pistols never played a gig in New York City at that, up until much later, years later. Uh, had not at that time, but John had the idea that they were the ones playing at Max's Kansas City when it was actually Sid Vicious. But he was critical of them. He says, I like the music. He says, I don't like when they're killing themselves, though. There's, there's a section of the book, speaking of uh, critical, <laughs> there's a section of the book called Winter, where you discuss the ending of the 70s. And I chuckled when I read it because you, you took a shot in particular at two songs that were at the top of the chart back then. Uh, Rupert Holmes. I, I tried to resist, but I, I, I just couldn't help myself. <laughs> I, as a fellow writer, I, I could see that there was a, a bit of a struggle there, but something had to come out. You, you took a shot at the Pina Colada song and Babe by Styx. Do, 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 you, do those songs really torture, torture you that much? Uh, short answer is yes. I mean, I think <laughs> I would have been un, unfaithful to my younger self if I had mentioned those songs and not taken a little bit of a uh you know a uh, little criticism of them uh you know it's it's all personal taste but some people <laughs> i'm sure love those songs i i do mention i do i do like uh the song hymn which was uh by rupert holmes that's a guilty pleasure which i probably shouldn't admit to but uh i do, I do enjoy that more than uh uh, the Pina Colada song, but I mentioned that just to try to give people an idea of what was going on musically at that time. And, you know, in some ways there's a lot of good stuff going on, but it wasn't necessarily all the time reflected of what was at the top of the charts. Although John was a big fan of Donna Summer and she was probably the most uh, dominant artist that year. And uh, he liked all her stuff. He had a copy of um, her song, um, uh, Hot Stuff. And um, uh, he would often mention uh, in interviews that he liked her music. There was a movie in in 2019 called Yesterday. Yeah. And I, I, have you seen it? Yes. About a musician who has an accident and wakes up in a world where their Beatles never existed. Um, the um, If you're listening from home, I'm going to issue a spoiler alert right now. So be warned. Uh, Tim, there's a scene in the movie where our uh, protagonist discovers that since the Beatles never happened, John Lennon is still alive. And uh, decades after he would have been dead in, in the real world. I'm curious how you reacted to that scene. I know I, I heard people were, some people were critical of it. Um, the movie as a whole, I enjoyed, I thought it was, I mean, people aren't watching the movie. The movie is sort of a fantasy of a world that uh, could have existed. So in that context, I think it was an interesting choice. And certainly I, I think they did it uh, respectfully. And uh, I thought it was inventive. John. Yeah. Have you had a happy life? Very. But not successful. I just said very happy. That means successful. Did the job I enjoyed day after day. Sailed the world. 
fall for things I believed in and won a couple of times. Found a woman I loved. Fought hard to keep her too. Live my life with her. I, the first time they did it, I mean, obviously when I, I watched it the first time, I remember thinking, I, you know, it's a surprise. You don't know who he's going to see until the door opens and you realize it's a much older John Lennon. And so I was really caught in the um, whimsical nature of the fantasy. And then for some reason, the second time I saw it, um, I cried and I don't yeah. know why, but I, yeah. I, I, I sobbed Yeah, and I don't know why, but. Um, well, I mean, this was, this was a great tragedy. I mean, that he was taken away from us, taken away in such a, a horrible and, and violent manner. And for no apparent reason, just a senseless uh, act, it's hard to come to grips with, you know, and I think, uh, you, we've, you know, Double Fantasy came out in, uh, on November 17th. John was killed just uh, maybe two, two and a half weeks later on the December 8th. You can't listen to the music from Double Fantasy without now it being tinged with the tragedy of what happened to him. And there was only a window of maybe two weeks where you could have uh, listened to the songs without the overlay. So, you know, when you hear these songs now, I, I think it, to me at least, it's, it's always somewhat bittersweet. It's hard to listen to them just out of context. Uh, they're always uh, have that uh, overlay of the horrible thing that happened to them right, right after the album came out. Based on what you've learned uh, in your research, was he happy with Double Fantasy? Did it live up to his expectations? Yes, I think so. I, I mean, he was—he saw that it was uh, going up the, the charts. Um, uh, David Geffen had told him that it was slated to be number one uh, very soon. Uh, it's amazing. It was only on the—I mean, the, the album had just been out for, as you just said, like a couple weeks. I mean, it was just uh, climbing up. It was in the top ten. Uh, that, that chart actually, Don actually saw, saw the chart for that week on Monday. And so we saw what it was doing and it was on the way, uh, likely on the way to number one. Uh, he was not interested in doing uh, a Beatles type album. He wasn't, in, although a woman is certainly a Beatles type of mm -hmm. song, but he told Jack Douglas, this is an album about who I am today. I'm a husband, I'm a father. I'm not the screaming guy, uh, uh, you know, marching with uh, with Jerry Rubin anymore. I'm not the I'm not uh, uh, 20 years old uh, singing in Hamburg. Uh, I'm I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm 40 years old, and I want that reflected in the music. And it was. And uh, so, yeah, I think he was happy with it. It's interesting because some of the reviews, especially in the UK thought it was a little bit toned down and uh, where's the old Lennon. And one of them said, well, unless you're married, happened to be married to Yoko Ono, it's going to be hard to relate to these songs. I mean, that was actual, what an actual reviewer uh, said, but um, you know, if you listen to some of the other uh, things, you like the song serve yourself, which was his response to Dylan's, uh, you got to serve somebody, which we mentioned earlier. John was still toying with that song in the fall of 1980, and it likely would have gone on uh, to a, a new album. I mean, if John had uh, put that out on Double Fantasy, none of those criticisms would have held water at all. Uh, you know, it showed that he was still had the satiric uh, bite and was still uh, talking about 
relevant things in people's life. It was really less an attack on uh, religion, which some people think it think of it as, I think, but more a uh, a plea for uh, getting a hold of your own life, you know, of uh, taking matters into your own hands and not looking for anyone or anything else to uh, to improve your own lot in life. You got to you got to take the bull by the horns and do it yourself. Tim, thanks for sharing the story of uh, John Lennon in 1980 in this book. It's it's really something to read, and it's, it's a thrill to talk to you today. Hey, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. So there we go. That's my conversation with Tim English. And again, my apologies for seeming so morose at the end of the show there. Even when I was editing the interview together afterwards, I got morose again. Uh, I don't know if it's the holidays or the COVIDness of the holidays. I can't. There's a lot of there's a lot of things to work out at this point. Let's face it. Yeah, and I think that was about the moment too when I really kind of understood that holy, holy wow, we're doing this within days of you know the anniversary of his death, and and that just started getting more and more dark, and that's what. Tim and I talked about when the interview ended, he and I kept talking and we tried to like wrap our minds around the idea of what the impact of that was. Well, I mean, talk about speculation, but what would he have done? Where would he have gone? How would he have been, how would he have been influenced by the music of the eighties and how would he have influenced the music of the eighties? Yeah. That's what's, I just don't know. That's what starts rolling around your head, and it really kind of messes you up a little bit. It does, and this book kind of (laughs) – you read this book, and it sets the stage for that because you realize that all that stuff that we love that builds to the 80s, he loved it too, or at least he was listening to it, and he was asking for – you know, he's asking people to get him copies so he could hear it. He had it in his jukeboxes. I mean, the stories are fantastic. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it just it, it puts him in a place where, like, look, I, I know that when I hear John Lennon, I think, oh, yeah, he's in the Beatles. Like, and, of course, those songs are amazing. But I don't think as much about his solo stuff. And I never really have. And I never really thought about the fact that he steps out of the music business for five years, which at the time, as uh, Tim says in the book, that's just unheard of. Yeah unheard of everybody is cranking out an album a year yeah and he just stepped out of it and he was just getting back into it and then he got killed just getting back into it at one of the most interesting times you know yeah so it just we'll never know i just i yeah what would have come out the other side of that singularity i don't know yeah uh by the way i should note that tim is the author of two other books that 80s fans uh, would appreciate one is called Popology, the music of the era and the lives of four icons of the 1960s, which makes sense because remember, so much of what we love about the 80s, so much of it is influenced directly by the 60s, and some of it is directly our direct cover songs. The other book, which I think is a no-brainer for, for most 80s fans, is called Sounds Like Teen Spirit, Stolen Melodies, Ripped Off Riffs, and the Secret History of Rock and Roll. Ooh. I would love to write a book one day, but I would be happy just writing the title of a book and having it sound as awesome as that one does. <laughs> the Secret History of Rock and Roll. I'm on board. Yeah, so, seriously. Waiting for Amazon to deliver my copy as we speak. Um, anyway, that book features pairings of songs that appear to have borrowed the, their melodies from earlier songs. 
Uh, and if it sounds amazing to you, Brad, don't be surprised to find a copy under your Christmas tree this year. Ooh, foreshadowing. <laughs> you know what else is foreshadowing? In no way ever. The, the Seggies. Oh, the haunting melody of I Want My Mystery TV theme song. There we go. Mm. I've changed it up. You did. It's a new you. I, like John Lennon, have been affected by the years 1975 through 1980, and it has caused me to change my patter during the seggies. Wow. That's it. That's the extent yeah. of the change, but it means a lot to me. I'm losing my mind. I don't know why. <laughs> but you're doing it on tape, and it's good radio. Yeah, okay. <laughs> anyway... You know the spiel here. We will play a snippet, always a snippet, of a TV theme song from the 80s. Now now it's starting to come unraveled. It's like the... <laughs> the tapes are starting to roll in your head. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, no, no! So we'll play it, and you'll get it right. And then, um, actually, what, five people get it right, usually. It's not usually a very big list. And uh, <laughs> one of you... <laughs> My gosh, we're off the rails here, people. <laughs> I'm sorry. I have no idea when he's going to get to it, but he's going to get there. Stay with us, listeners. Stay uh, with us. <laughs> Steve. You know the rules here. You, there's no rules. Again, I'm, I'm just making stuff up. Okay, okay. I'm, I'm going to focus for the rest of the show. I'm focusing now. It's nothing On but what? professionalism. I don't know. Oh, I'm, I'm staring okay. at a blank very wall. Very serious news. It's like uh, Steve Martin in the second half of LA story. Oh, yeah. Tonight on the Very Serious News. <laughs> we'll play a snippet of a theme song from the AZ to get it right. You're entered into a drawing for a postal friendly bottle opener. As you might recall, this was the tune from the last show we did this in. That's Scarecrow and Mrs. King. Steve, did, did you watch this show? You know, that's a good question, Brad. I knew you were going to ask it because I looked at the show notes a couple days ahead of time. And I was going to shock you by saying, well, yes, Brad, I've watched the first five episodes of it because I figured surely something like this would be on That would YouTube. have blown my mind. And you can't find it anywhere for free. Really? Oh. You can pay for it. Well, God. But I'm not, you know, just for... like just like miles in risky business. I don't have to pay for it. Yeah, but I did look everywhere for Scarecrow, huh. Mrs. King, or just just give me an episode, just give me something. And yeah, nope, throw me a man. freaking bone here, people. They huh, got that. That garden gate is shut and locked. So, well, so the answer, bad. of course, is to your question. The answer is no. <laughs> no. I, I did not watch it either, but reading about it, I can't believe I missed it. I mean, Bruce Boxleiter. I love Bruce Boxleiter. Kate Jackson. I adore Kate Jackson. Yeah. You know, it wouldn't have been our thing back then. It was, That's it was probably it was true. But yeah, I mean, it was on in the mid-80s. It ran for like four seasons. It was, you know, it was top 20 for the first couple of years, and then it was top 30, and then they moved it to Friday nights, and it was a top 50 show, and then the end. I guess we can give them points for restraint. They had a character code named Scarecrow, but they only used one Wizard of Oz-related episode title. Oh, nice. That's pretty good. Called We're Off to See the Wizard. Of course. Which, as it turns out, won the show's lone Emmy for Outstanding Achievement in Music Composition for a Series, parentheses, Dramatic Understore, close parentheses. That's... Like, what kind of weirdo 
category is that? I, I don't know, but I know that this episode's going to be up for uh, outstanding achievement and buffoonery in a yeah. podcast that ha- has no direction whatsoever. That's like a, an award for best shirt ironing on Tuesdays. Yeah. I mean, take the win. I mean, like, oh, yes, I'm Emmy winning, you know, so-and-so. When they ask you what the Emmy is, you're like, oh, I just remembered I have to make an important phone call. Yeah. Be right back. So, <laughs> anyway. Oh, Steve, we did have some winners this time. Winners this week include Richard the Big Bunny, Venom Vey, East Coast Alex, Commodore 64 Will, Noel O'Regan, and Brian Pawn. Okay. I'm going to, um, in my feverish condition now, spin the wheel for Ooh. a change and see what happens. Let's see what happens. Ready? Yep. Ooh. You've been working out. I can tell. No, if you saw me, you'd know that was not true. Um, it looks like it's going to land on Venom Vey. Oh, my old buddy. Nice. Dan, send us a postal-friendly address, and we will send you the <laughs> postal-friendly bottle opener. That made no sense. Well, uh, he, I, I he, got, he got the gist. He got the gist. It's a Saturday afternoon. It, just, it feels like I'm, like, I'm, like I'm trying to run in mud right now. Talking through molasses, the Steve Spears story. <laughs> Ooh, that would be a good name for my book. The future wife and I were just discussing we needed to compile a list of all my would-be autobiography titles at some point. So Yeah, we had a list going at some point. One of, A listener had been compiling one for us, but I don't know what happened to that <laughs> pet think, project. I hope they found something better to do with their time. I think that's what happens to a lot of the, the listener projects that people start is they realize after a while they're like, there's many more better things they can do with their time. And not that yeah. we don't appreciate it, right. but uh, I'm just saying. But there's probably a higher value use of your time. Like, for instance, you could, you know, learn to play piano. <laughs> don't don't even start me on the whole piano lesson, organ lesson thing again. You know, I'm already... I could have gone with guitar. You could learn to play kazoo. Recorder? Oh, by the way, I should say this. We just got through Thanksgiving weekend, and my mom... We were, you know, the family's around and we're telling stories. She categorically denied... Nearly every one of the traumatic stories that I've shared on the podcast. I mean, like, as far as, as she's concerned, m- my childhood did not exist. Your mom's gaslighting you over your own childhood? Yes. Wow, that's yes. rough. I was flipping out. I was just like, <laughs> like, you can't, I can't believe you're saying these things never happened. So, but anyway, I'm sure yours was better. How, how was your Thanksgiving? Uh, Thanksgiving was, I was calling it Weirdsgiving for a while because it was kind of a strange weekend. Uh, my kids came home, which is great. My daughter drove home from Oregon. She got home late on Thursday, and my son was supposed to fly on Thursday just to avoid people, and his flight got canceled, so he ended up flying home on Friday, la, 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 so we're still kind of quarantining in the house just since he was on an airplane, but uh, we had a, we did not have turkey, but we had some really nice steaks on Saturday. We had this bizarre spread of another thing that my mom will probably deny a year from now. <laughs> there was- happened. There was turkey and a ham, but Ooh. nobody claimed credit for bringing the ham. So there was a mystery ham. And then there was this weird, I'm trying to remember what it's called, this weird little um, salad that was made with, oh, like vinegar and ketchup, not ketchup, tomato sauce. It's called like soggy pennies. Have you ever heard of it? What? No, so, why would soggy, you eat or that? Or shiny pennies. And it, and what else did it have? It had onions in it, and it was, huh. it, was, it was some sort of like almost like a relish. Huh. 
it was just like this little bowl of it. And I, I still can't get – the entire meal, I could never get the name right. I was calling it like shiny quarters and, yeah. um, you know, dime a, bag, bag. a bag of dimes. And uh, But it, it was – there was carrots in there too. There might have been some fruit. But it was in this – What? It was, in this, it was just like this weird – Why is your family trying to kill you? I don't know. If you know what I'm talking about out there, listener, man, if, yeah, if you're still please, listening to the show. Please write, yeah, please write in and tell us what the heck Spearsy experienced. I, I think I was getting punked or something. But yeah, there was the soggy pennies. And then yeah, I everyone's made, like, we'll trick Steve into eating this random bowl of crap it, we pulled actually, out of the cupboard. It tasted better than the ha- mystery ham did. and But there was a lot of weird things that at that dinner. and But the, the soggy pennies was definitely huh. the top of the list. There's also this green jello slime that my mom makes every year that's like jello and Cool Whip and, <gasps> and oh my gosh, celery. Straight out of like a Midwest church potluck dinner. Yeah. Like yeah. served in a, like you do it in like a bunt pan mold. No, it's served in like a big <laughs> um, cake sheet pan. Oh, okay. But it's not, you can't see through it because the right, Cool Whip makes the it. the Cool Whip. Yeah. It's opaque. There might be grapes in there too. I don't. Know. I don't touch it. Oh my lord! I put kale in it, honey. <laughs> I wouldn't be shocked. It was just. It was just one of those kind of meals, and uh, I think uh, I can trace all of my sadness back to the soggy pennies. Okay, well, maybe put that on a t-shirt and mail it to me. Yeah, maybe it's time to upgrade <laughs> to soggy quarters. Anyway, uh, pay attention. Here's this week's mystery clip. If you know it or have any answers to my life whatsoever, please email me at podcast at sit80s.com. We'll be right back after this commercial break. I'm Justin Wilson. Be my guest for the Louisiana Cooking Holiday Special. In South Louisiana, we know that what you eat affects the way you live. That's how come the reason that us Cajuns eat so well. So we can live well all the time. We start the year off right. Green cabbage, that's for money. Black eyed pea, that's for health. And pork, that's for happiness. And we got a lot of that. So for good food and good times, join me for the Louisiana Cooking Holiday Special. Tune up to your LPB station Thursday night at 7. And we're back. And we spent the break time very effectively. We now know the name of the mystery dish. Brad found it. What's what's it called, Brad? It's called Copper Pennies. Okay. And what's Which, as it? we all know, Copper Pennies are not made anymore because copper is too valuable. Now pennies are made out of zinc. Yeah. But Copper Pennies, ingredients, two pounds of carrots, a green pepper, an onion, a can of tomato soup, some cooking oil, some vinegar, some sugar, some dry mustard, a little Worcestershire. Oh, God. And then you like cook all this stuff up then you refrigerate it and it looks like it's served cold yeah it was served cold so you cook the carrots and but the onions and the green peppers are raw and then you boil it so i guess that cooks down the peppers and the onions a little bit this is this is a cooking show i would not watch yeah no it it wasn't bad i'm not gonna make it this afternoon or anything yeah but it uh, it was something, all right. <laughs> it's it says it's ready in an hour and twenty minutes, and it serves ten to twelve people. So oh if you got God. a bunch of people coming, then sign up. I don't know. It, it was like I said, better than the mystery ham. So. Okay. Anyway, what else is going on? I heard you got some uh, pretty cool books the other day. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I know we're we're talking. This is the literary week with stuck in the eighties, and we got a couple of books 
to review and look over from author Tammy Deaver. The first one is I Like Big Books and I Cannot Lie, which, mm. again, it's a clever title. We'll talk about that one first. It's almost like, do you remember when you were a kid and you had like activity books? This page has stickers and this oh, one yeah. has a word find. Sure. It's kind of like that, but it's 80s and 70s music. So it's got like little puzzles and like she's rewritten like song lyrics with a literary bent. Let me hit you with a puzzle here. The first half of the phrase I'm going to give you is a book and the second half is a song and there's a word in the middle that connects them, right? Uh-huh. So chicken soup for the blank man. <laughs> so chicken soup for the soul, soul man. Oh, okay. Now I get it. Sorry. And then you have to identify like who wrote the book and who sang the song. So it's there's some like little trivia quizzes Oh like man, that. that's hardcore. Yeah, yeah, it is. The first part easy, the second part less easy. And then there's just like crossword puzzles and word games, all kinds of stuff. The second one, honestly, I almost was afraid to open it because it's called The Ultimate Mixtape Music Quiz Book, and it's Mm. got Stuck in the 80s hosted trivia written all over it Mm. in Sharpie marker because I did that. It's all trivia quizzes, little trivia quizzes on 70s and 80s music. These questions are great. It's, It's really fun. Like, let me find something here for you. So here is... Uh, okay, so these are lyrics, little pieces of lyrics, and you have to tell me the song and the art- artist. Are you ready, Steve? Okay, fire away. A steel horse. What? A steel horse. I have no idea what you're talking about. It's a snippet of a lyric. Okay, I'll give you another one. A tin roof. Oh, tin roof rusted? You mean uh, Love Shack by the B-52s? <laughs> you got it! Yay! See, there's questions for everybody in here. Um, microwave ovens. Microwave ovens? Yeah, song that mentions Oh, 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 oh. it's uh, Money for Nothing by Dire Straits. Yeah, yeah, see? So there's just like pages and pages of this stuff. God. Yeah, there's some really hard ones, but there's always like every page I'm like, oh my gosh, these are impossible, but at least one of them I could get. And I'm like, okay, I feel a little bit smarter now. This is really kind of hurting my head. I I thought we were recording a podcast today. Usually that requires no thinking whatsoever. You didn't know I was going to hit you with. No. like, Like, okay. And then there's, yeah, there's all these different kind of different types of questions and different angles like here's a a whole section i'm just thumbing through it here as as we talk Uh, there's a section called moving pictures your goal is to guess the hit movie from the 70s or the 80s each movie has a set of six song titles as your clues that describe events characters and the plot roughly in the order they happen these are hard oh no these yeah. are really hard. Like we would get, we'd get thrown off the boat for some of these. But you, well, you know what? I don't know if you noticed, but we're getting trolled on our Facebook pages lately by um, people who were on the cruise and still making fun of us for the first couple <laughs> years where it was too hard. Oh, poor little boo boos! We hurt their feelings. <laughs> I mean, like, let it go, man. That was six years ago, or it seems like it. I guess it was only six, like 60. Anyway, (laughs) if you're looking for something, like a little something for the stocking stuffer or a fun gift for an 80s fan that you know or that you are, get them for yourself. The first one's I Like Big Books and I Cannot Lie, and the second one is called Ultimate Mixtape Music Quiz Book. They're both by Tammy Deaver, and they're on Amazon. That's cool. Uh, And they're fun. Yeah, they're really fun. You could tell she had a good time putting them together. The questions, some of them are really hard, but like I said, there's always some easy ones. And the answers are in the back, so you can fill it out and look smart to all your friends. Oh, just like our math books back in grade school. Exactly. Exactly. Anyway, that's all we have for this week. I hope you take time to put on Double Fantasy, listen to it again, enjoy the music, 
definitely consider taking a look at Tim English's book. I really think that if you're a Beatles fan, it's something you're going to want to read. In the meantime, we're all getting ready for the holidays. I hope your travels are safe. I hope we all stay safe. And while we do, Brad and I will remain here, hopelessly stuck in the 80s. Stuck in the 80s is now on Patreon. If you'd like to support the show, go to patreon.com slash stuck in the 80s podcast. Special thanks to Check Battery Daily for our theme music. And thanks for listening.